When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another exceptionally interesting episode of History Hack. I think this is possibly the most modern we've ever been. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that. I have George McCaffrey, former Sergeant George McCafferty with me, who is a former serving soldier who served two tours in Afghanistan and served through Herrick 8 in 2008. He's here today to talk to us about his new book on his diary of heavy fighting that year, uh, The Little Men, an Afghanistan Diary. George, welcome to History Hack. How are you doing? I'm great. Thank you very much for having me on. It's, um, it's actually brilliant to be on the podcast and obviously get a chance to talk about my book. Because uh, as you've alluded to, uh, most of it is going to be like World War Two history and stuff. So it's nice to sort of try and keep the the, you know, the more modern wars into uh, keep them in perspective. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. I know I'm probably going to come on to this a bit later as well. But I personally, when I when I did do my first World War stuff, I find the diaries and letters of the serving men and officers much more interesting and tell much more of a bigger picture of the conflict than. General Sir Hugh Bastard in charge, who's written his campaign history, yeah. you know. So this yeah. sort of book, I, I think, is invaluable. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, um, you know, outside of you know, the work I do, I'm, I'm a historical battle actor. So a lot of what I like to do, I like to look back into the sort of history. So there's a lot of good books in the period that I reenact that actually from the soldier's perspective, which is nice because if you are trying to recreate a, a reenactment, it's it's good to try and be as accurate as you can. So I think. Diaries, you know, letters, all that sort of information that's out there is absolutely you're invaluable, as you say. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, you get some great. Uh, the one I'm reading at the moment is about a midshipman who's stationed at Sheerness in 1914, oh, wow. and there's several letters about how dingy and awful it is. <laughs> just living in Gillingham, I find that hilarious. <laughs> anyway, uh, let's start. We should start at the beginning. I'm sorry, Sheerness, but you are dingy. Um, so. <laughs> I get in so much trouble. So, uh, what is your what was your background and army career before tours of Afghanistan? So basically, I, I mean, I joined the British Army in May 1993. I enlisted in Edinburgh um, as part of the First Battalion, the Royal Scots, which at that point was the oldest infantry regiment in the British Army, and we gained a royal warrant in 1633 to raise a regiment 
uh, which ironically didn't fight for the crown until around 1690, which is, is absolutely bizarre. Um, so I enlisted there as a very oh, fresh-faced 18-year-old soldier. Um, so from there, I kind of sort of, I was first posted to Inverness. Uh, from there, I did multiple tours of Northern Ireland, which was kind of interesting. Uh, and if you read the book, you know, a lot of what I learned uh, in Northern Ireland, we kind of cross-pollinated across to, you know, the conflict in Afghanistan tactics-wise. Um, so, yeah, I kind of cut my teeth in um, in South Armagh, which they, you know, traditionally they called bandit country because it was apparently the most dangerous place, you know, in Northern Ireland, possibly even Europe at that mm -hmm. stage. So multiple tours of, of, of Northern Ireland. Um, I also did a stint um, in Kosovo with... Um, the Green Howards, which uh, then became the 2nd Battalion of Yorkshire Regiment two days into our, our tour of Kosovo. Um, that was uh, a covert surveillance tour, um, just looking for uh, you know indicted war criminals and people that had managed to escape The Hague. Because um, at that point in my career, I was actually based with the Operational Training Advisory Group, uh, which prepares soldiers for pre-deployment missions. Uh, and my team was specifically to do mm. with covert surveillance, um, you know, uh, you know, in, intelligence, surveillance, you know, target acquisition, reconnaissance, all that sort of good stuff, um, but in a covert setting. So we were preparing covert teams to be working in uh, last teams for Northern Ireland before we kind of close that down. Uh, the Balkans, so we were still training troops for Bosnia, uh, training troops for Kosovo, and we ended up training uh, Swedish troops for that, um, training British troops for covert ops in, in Kosovo. Uh, training guys for Iraq, so surveillance duties, and we're also training troops to uh, assist special forces with high-value target snatches in Iraq. And then we're also um, preparing Brigade Recce Force um, reconnaissance troops for uh, the burgeoning war in Helmand. Um, so yeah, I was kind of like pre-deployment, oh, wow. then went out to the Balkans, came back from the Balkans. Um, my, my tour at Optag was only supposed to be a six-month secondment from my regiment. Um, but it ended up being three years, and to be fair, it was the best wow. in my career. It was awesome, such a really good job. Um, so yeah, I was uh, you know I finished platoon sergeant's battle course because um, you had to be a sergeant to be an optag or, or on my team, uh, and I got a phone call from my sergeant major saying, um, "How do you fancy a trip to Kosovo?" I was like, "Yeah, when? This Friday? How long? Three months?" <laughs> so yeah, I just deployed across with the guys uh, to you know to uh, Pristina with two Yorks uh, for three months. Came back from there and my time was almost up. So my regimental careers management officer said, well, what's next for you, George? Where'd you, you know, where'd you fancy going? And of course, where I was based was, you know, southeast of England down in Kent. So without thinking, I said, oh, the Argyles, uh, five Scots are going to Afghanistan. Now, I fancy a bit of that. And, you know, they always say, be careful what you wish for, because you might just get it. And uh, if you read the book, you'll know, mm. boy, I get what I asked for. Yeah. Yeah, oh, I can imagine. Oh, but but so you go out. You you've done one. You do one tour in Afghanistan, and the the book is about your second tour, isn't it? No, the, the book is um, actually about the first tour. Uh, the second tour, Herrick thirteen, um, was in two thousand and ten, and that was a winter tour. So what what was your first impression of, of Afghanistan when you got there? So I mean, when you arrive, I mean it's the same as as most war zones. I mean, for soldiers who arrived in Iraq as well, you know, you know during the late unpleasantness will have found you know, the, the, the same sort of thing. So you arrive kind of like in Kandahar Air Base, you know, everything's done in the dark, you know, the pilots all fly on night vision, it's all low light. So when you arrive in you know in Kandahar, you get the word, you know, you're on a civilian flight. So we are there, you know, in this, you know, a, a, 
chartered flight by some you know random American airline. So we fly in, all the lights go off, and then we land. Um, and it's basically combat helmets on, body armor on, and they say, right, you know, don't stop, just keep running and moving until you get to to, um, to the terminal. Which for me straight away is like, okay, wow, this is this is going to be interesting. Uh, and again, it's all done at the dark in dark, just to prevent the Taliban from like launching mortars or rockets onto the base or onto the actual airhead itself. And um, even in the dark, I could not believe how hot it was. You know, the sun was long gone, but it was still so so hot. And then um, Kandahar Air Base was like a completely different world. You know, it, it was a hive of industry. So, it, you know, it was an aircraft spotter's absolute dream. So that every type of airframe you could possibly hope to see in your life was actually based at Kandahar. Um, so we crossed decked from mm. the civilian airliner and ended up getting onto a Hercules uh, transport plane with all our, our kit basically netted in. Um, and secured into the back of the Herc, and it was just basically a case of, right, guys, you're here for an hour, we'll mount up, get onto the Herc, and then we'll fly forward to Camp Bastion, because they weren't flying direct flights um, into uh, Bastion until later on. My second tour, we flew in in our charter flight to Bastion, just simply because they'd, re- they'd built the airfield up to be slightly bigger. So when you arrive at Bastion and you start going out and going patrol for things um, around the area, how did you find the conditions? Uh, and, and you mentioned that it was hot at night time, but it was it was even worse during the day, wasn't it? Oh, absolutely. So, I mean, in Camp Bastion, um, we're supposed to be, um, we do so like, uh, they call it the RSOI package. So um, reinforcement, integration, um, staging and onward movement, uh, the RSOI package. So it's basically training um to prepare you to go forward and then you get briefings off the units that have been serving out there giving you any change in sort of enemy tactics you're supposed to be there for about a week but i ended up going forward to forward operating base keenan um which is um just north of goreshk so i flew out there after flew out to there after a couple of days to take over from the guards um and basically set up ready for our troops arriving so Pretty much as soon as we hit the ground, we were running. You know, we swapped over. The guards went one way, we were coming mm-hmm. the other. And, you know, it was just a case of getting to know your area. So as we went out, the first thing that struck me, I mean, I was expecting Afghanistan to be, you know, this hot, dry, you know, desert country where there's nothing for miles. Um, and nothing could be further from the truth. And even more so when we moved north to Musakala. Um you know the term the green zone is you know is exactly what it says on the tin. So um, yeah, you have got stretches and expanses of desert, but there's also um, lush, verdant green areas, especially around about the Helmand River, um, that are almost like jungles. So you've got the you know, the humidity as well. Um, there's always constant dust. So when you're patrolling, you're kicking up the dust. You know the heat. You know it, the amount of kit that you're carrying as well. Your energy gets sapped so so quickly. Um, and it's difficult, especially with body armor, helmet, your weapon, all your sort of tactical gear, your spare ammunition. It's easy, very easy to lose focus, um, especially at that point when you're not sort of used to the heat. You know, you haven't built up your tolerance to, to the conditions yet. It's very easy to get tired very, very quickly and, and kind of lose focus, uh, which can be quite dangerous. But luckily enough, you know, as it was, uh, forward operating base Keenan. Uh, turned out to be kind of like a dress rehearsal for us. It allowed us to kind of cut our teeth um, and it allowed us to get used to the heat, you know, the carrying of the kit and patrolling sort of long distances. 
um, before the enemy started actually engaging us and we had to you having to deal with firefights. So we're getting to know the local population of Helmand. We're starting to figure out some of the sort of tactics based around what the enemy are likely to do. Because uh, at this stage, they're still talking. We can still hear their radio chatter. So their ICOM, so their individual communications radios can be listened into. Uh, and that's why our interpreters out there were so invaluable, because they can tell us what the enemy are talking about. So even though at that stage the battle hadn't got hot, um, they were still conducting their reconnaissance on us. They were still plotting us. And they were still basically telling us they were going to attack us, even though they had no intention of doing so. Um, so, yeah, for, for that little while, it was ideal for us to kind of cut our teeth, um, get acclimatised to the conditions and basically start to get those niggles out, the sore shoulders, the sore hips, you know, the knees, the lactic acid build up in your calves and your thighs, you know, the severe sweating that comes with patrolling in, you know, at 50 odd degree heat. Um, with probably the same weight as my 12-year-old daughter strapped to my back. Wow. <laughs> yeah, and that, that wrote about um, one of the guys suffering from sort of heat stroke in the back of one of the ABCs at one point, just yeah. from not having enough water. And and this is it. And the problem was um, that particular instance, we were I, I had literally come back from R&R and we were moving um, up to Musakala. So I'd literally, I'd gone on, when I went on R&R, my company was still at um, Bob Keenan, just north of Goresh. Um, because there wasn't hap anything happening there, and um, the battle group decided that they needed a fighting company up in Musakala because the enemy were running rampant, they decided to send Delta Company up to Musakala. So when I came back off R&R, I was going to a different patrol base much further north. Um, so we, there was a danger of helicopters being shot at, and... Indeed, a couple of the helicopters going into Musakala while I was on R&R &R had been engaged with rocket and small arms fire. So the only way they were moving troops sort of into that area was in the back of warrior uh, armoured personnel carriers. Um, the problem was, because it's so dry and dusty, um, dust got into all the filters, you know, the air conditioning stopped working. Mm. So you've got, you know, anything between four and six, you know, equipped armored you know helmet on guys with their kit in the back of this unair conditioned metal can so pretty quickly you know if you're not drinking water yeah. um inside that you're basically being cooked inside this 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 apc um so you have to keep taking on board water and at every opportunity i got you know the back door of the vehicle was open just so we could get some air in but uh, i was conscious of the fact that your, my rifle was still pointing at the back of that warrior door while it was open. Yeah, you've got to be you've got to be so careful with that later. But everywhere, everywhere country is hostile or possibly yeah. hostile. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I was gonna say, uh, amongst the danger, they have like really amusing moments, and I, I genuinely laughed out loud. The uh, the one with the Danish soldier, uh, female soldier. That that I genuinely laughed about that quite a bit, but uh, <laughs> the fact that your drinking water was so hot that you made yourself like a hot chocolate just by adding the chocolate powder in a shake. It was. It, it, it's, it's crazy, honestly. So you, you know, the, the, there was no room inside the vehicle for for water. So what the um, and I'll give a shout out to you know Fourth Battalion Royal Regiment of Scotland, the Highlanders, who were our, our warrior company um, supporting us. Um, yeah, they, they couldn't fit anything other than ammunition and kit inside the vehicle. So pretty much all their personal gear and the water was strapped onto the outside. And of course, yeah, it's, it, it's almost like putting a, you know, boiling it up in a kettle. And I could, I, I made myself a couple of bottles mm. of tea on the way up to Musakala. 
just to try and sort of you know keep my fluids up and you know drink other uh, something other than um, the finest camp bastion spring. <laughs> uh, uh, Chattering about that, it made me think of some of the stories my dad told me from, from his service in the Second World War, where he wouldn't tell you all the nasty stuff, but he'd tell you like the jokey stories, like, oh, you won't believe what we did with this. Just think of that. And uh, yeah, I did really critically. Do, do, do you want to tell us about um, the, the, the Danish thing? Yeah, so I mean, I, I've spoken to soldiers, you know, people, people think that this is an urban legend, um, but. You know, people that were on the same tour as me that weren't at my patrol base, you know, when I told them that that was going in the book, that, God, yeah, I remember that. And um, so the, this young lady, this young soldier, um, she was part, so we would have, because uh, uh, forward operating base Keenan, we were actually under Danish command at that stage. Um, we'd been seconded to the Danes. So all our resupply, ammunition, food, water, anything came through the Danes. Um, so it, it was... Our combat logistic patrol so we were being resupplied one day so we're all sat there you know guys are having a bit of downtime because you know we've been out on patrol for you know a few days or whatever so the guys are just chilling out there and they're issued boxer shorts and their flip-flops convoy starts coming in and then on the helipad this um light armored vehicle i think they call it a piranha it's the same model as the u.s marine sort of light armored vehicle this sort of th- this light armored vehicle sort of screeches to a halt and um the hatch opens and then this this crew helmet sort of sticks out the top and then you're kind of looking around next thing the helmet comes off and it's almost like slow motion there's this lovely long blonde hair just gets sort of swept around and then the soldier sort of levers herself out of this hatch and then suddenly everybody that was you know that had something to do or had nothing to do was kind of gathered around this helipad so this young lady then sort of proceeds Mm. to jump down off the um the armoured vehicle. Now, bearing in mind, you know, I think this was about our second month of the tour. So we hadn't seen a woman, especially a woman as attractive as this. So this lady jumped off the the vehicle, takes off her body armour, takes off her combat jacket. And, you know, without sounding too misogynistic, she was a very, very attractive young lady. And uh, one of the lads said, her face is quite familiar. You know, I quite recognise that. And um, he comes back. Uh, a couple of minutes later with what I'll say is just a gentleman's interest magazine. Um, and of course, this this, <laughs> this female Danish soldier is sent a fold of this magazine um, in quite some interesting poses. And then next thing, there was like a cloud of dust. All you see is this crowd of jocks trying to get into like the best position that they possibly can. You know, the bunkers, the Sanger positions that are supposed to be protecting us from Taliban you know, sneak attacks. All the binoculars are suddenly facing in towards the helipad. And um, of course, none of us could get nearer, but <laughs> part of her crew were two Viking-looking big blonde guys with muscles upon muscles. So I think we'd probably risk certain dismemberment if we'd have gone anywhere nearer. But to make matters even worse, she strips down to her bra top and starts getting out of the suntan oil, brings out her camp bed and lays there for about two hours just soaking up the sun. But for that two hours... Bob Keenan was the most undefended place in Afghanistan. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. I love that I talk, story. I talk to people and people are like, yeah, oh, <laughs> I, I remember that. Yeah, I remember her. Yeah, she was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> but but, but pe- people don't see that when, when you talk about war and everyone's like, oh, yeah, this is the fighting and this is the fighting. But it's moments like this it just, it's where people are just human and they're just, 
it's just it's just such, it just adds such an extra layer to the to the conflict and the experiences. Yeah, it absolutely does, and you know it just goes to show you, you know, uh, you know, probably experiences from your relatives. You know, war, wars are wars, but you know, soldiers still remain the same. You know, we still have the same, you know, the, the same likes and dislikes. You know, we probably have similar experiences to say, you know, our our grandfathers who fought in World War Two. You know, great grandfathers who served in the Great War. So there's probably a lot that, you know, soldiers from whatever period would probably recognise from my book. Yeah, and uh, lads in their mid-twenties at the sight of a beautiful woman in a brothel is pretty much always going to have the same effect, wherever they are. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, a, you know, a, a Nordic beauty, a, a Danish beauty, you know, because we hadn't, like I say, we hadn't seen any females other than um, the Afghan local women, but obviously they're wearing, you know, their burqas and stuff. So, you, I mean, you don't even see the full woman. You just see, you know, you see the shoes and that's it. You know, yeah. so to have you know a Western female, uh, especially an attractive Western female, come into camp, yeah, it was. Um, I think there were a few pulses raised in the the patrol base that day. <laughs> I better move on, or Alex and Alina will kill me. So, uh, <laughs> you, you mentioned your R and R time. Was it was it strange going back to to the UK, having been um, in Afghanistan in Afghanistan so long? It was. I mean, to be fair, I mean, my R&R was quite early in the tour. So, uh, like I say, I, I was still at the company. were still at Fob Keenan um, when I went away on R&R. So your, your R&R is normally two weeks back in the UK. So when I went back, I felt like a bit of a fraud. So I was going into the pub and people were, you knew I was back from Afghanistan. So they were buying me drinks and I felt a bit of a fraud because up until then, I hadn't, be, I hadn't been engaged. I hadn't engaged anyone, you know firefights which is something that you know, hadn't happened yet so people buying me a pint I felt like a bit of a fraud but also when I went home you know the news was always on because mm. I was conscious that you know a hundred other lads you know my lads were still out there back in Helmand you know and I was keeping an eye on the news because sadly most of the lads I know that have been killed out there you only see about it or hear about it on the news so I was I was always mm. you know subconsciously I was always still back in Helmand so I was keeping an eye on the lads um, th- that were still there. And unfortunately, my commanding officer, um, Colonel Richmond, was shot when I was on R&R because when I was away, that's when the fighting really started. The lads had obviously gone north to Musakala um, and it, that's when it started to heat up. So obviously, poppy season was finished. Um, and you know, mm. while I was away, while I was enjoying peace and quiet back home, the boys were were back there fighting, and Colonel Richmond took a bullet to the the femur, and um, completely shattered his femur. And I think to this day, um, his leg has still not healed properly. Um, he he had to have a cage put on it. You know, he he was in a really bad way. You know, when he when he got evacuated. Um, so yeah, it, it was it was starting to heat up. So for me, uh, it was quite an anxious two weeks. I mean, I was glad I was home, but similarly, I couldn't wait to get back to Afghanistan. Um, because I had, you know, 30 young men relying on me. Because by this stage, I mean, I was 33 when I ended up on Hurricane. So I was quite an old head. You know, I, I'd already done, like, multiple tours of Ireland. I'd, I'd done my stint in Kosovo. I'd been into the Balkans, in and out of the Balkans, with uh, the surveillance teams training them. I'd even done a quick stint in Iraq, uh, just a week long, so not long enough to um, gain my medal, but long enough to get mortared on a regular basis by... Um, Iraqi insurgents. So I was consciously aware that I had 30 young men who basically it was my responsibility to, to keep them alive, 
and so I was I was always anxious and I was never I was I was ready to return to Afghanistan if if I'm honest. So when that two weeks was up, um, yeah, I couldn't get back to Helmand quick enough. Yeah, yeah. I suppose um, you have a certain amount of guilt about oh god, I should be there, I should be with them, and instead I'm sat here in the pub. Yeah, absolutely. Which sounds awful, but it's yeah, yeah, it, it's true. Yeah, it's it, it, it's a very very odd feeling to be sat back and you know you're watching on the news because uh, you know 2008. Um, I, I mentioned it in my book. You know, NATO said it was the deadliest summer of the war so far, so it was always on the news. You know, there were you know young mm. men being killed on a regular basis. You know, so it's you, you're just having your fingers crossed and saying, please don't let it be any of my guys. So it, yeah, it's a very anxious two weeks, and it's a two weeks of yeah, let's you know let's let's stay safe and you know let, let, let's just look to that date of, of getting back to back to the team. Yeah. Yeah, on a slightly lighter note, uh, I did. I found the description of these guys quite funny as well. The uh, what was your impression of the ANP? So, um, the Afghan National Police <laughs> uh, on Hurricane, um, they were absolutely terrible, and I, I, I pull no punches with this. Um, the, and it's unfortunate because the Afghan police, um, they kind of be like the, they'd been the poor cousins of the Afghan security forces because up till two thousand and eight. The focus had always been on the Afghan National Army, um, for obvious reasons, because they are going to be taking, you know, the, the operations, the full combat operations to to the Taliban. So the investment in them was seen to be more important than the Afghan National Police. Uh, as a consequence, you know, the vast majority of them were on, you know, hashish and or opium. So they went out on patrol, mm. stoned all the time, um, which is great. But these guys are armed with light machine guns, AK-47s and rocket-propelled grenades. Um, drugs do not mix well with firearms. Uh, you know, you, you no. can have some nasty accidents. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I found them to be... They weren't very professional. They saw themselves as soldiers. And when you try to explain to them, you know, you're not a soldier, you're a policeman. You know, it, it, you're, it's like talking to, to a brick wall because they just don't see the difference between them and the Afghan army. Um, the the differences between the Afghan army and the Afghan police are they're wide. There is a vast gulf between the two organisations. The main one being that the Afghan National Army were not from Helmand, so the troops that were fighting alongside us weren't from Helmand province. They were from Kabul, the northern provinces. Whereas the Afghan police um, were from Helmand, so they were all local lads. So they knew the lay of the ground, which you thought would have been a really really good thing to have. <laughs> Unfortunately, I've been in firefights where you've got an Afghan policeman firing an AK-47 fully automatic on in one hand, not sure what he's hitting, not sure what he's firing, but he's engaging one-handed. And in his other hand, he's got his mobile phone. And you know, it's like, speak to the interpreter, John. What is he saying? And um, the interpreter is like, oh, he's um, he's telling off his cousin because um, he's he's basically taking the piss out of his cousin because he can't shoot. He's like, you need to aim slightly higher. I was like, what? He's like, yeah, his cousin is in the Taliban. It's his cousin that is shooting at us. Um, oh, so, my God. <laughs> again, it's, you know, these guys are, um, yeah, they're locals. So they may have brothers, cousins, friends, family members um, who are in the Taliban. And I, I suppose you can kind of equate it to, you know, you've got police officers back in the UK that may have come from certain areas. And they know people that are, um, let's just say, not above, uh, you know, they don't stick to the line of the law. Um, but yeah, the Afghan police, mm. a lot of them were mixed up, 
with with the Taliban. A lot of them were turncoats. Some of them had been Taliban. In fact, on my second tour on Herrick 13, um, I went out as a Afghan police mentor and advisor. And you get to see the real flavour of the Afghan of police. Then you actually go out and, and work close with them. Um, and, it, you know, it, it's, it's an eye-opener. Um, they, they're a very mixed bag. Certainly the guys I worked with on Herrick 13, we had, under my responsibility, I had three platoons of Afghan police. One of them was absolutely useless. You know, they would go out onto into their police checkpoints. They would be stoned. They would fire at shadows and they would waste all their ammunition or they would sell it to the Taliban. Um, you would then have oh, second platoon, which were absolutely brilliant. I mean, I couldn't, they were, they were professional. Their sergeant, um, I often wonder what happened to him. Sergeant Abdul Barry was an absolute professional, consummate professional. And for me, um, his level of professionalism showed itself when I gifted him, because this was winter, I gifted him a thermal jacket. He took it off me and thanked me profusely for it, mm. for giving him the jacket. And he handed it over to his youngest policeman. Um, so for me, that was a, a demonstration of professionalism. And not only that, but leadership. And then the third platoon was kind of like a mix and match of the both. Um, and the Afghan police, your average Afghan policeman, um, is illiterate. Um, they, they can't read and they can't write. Mm. Um, so when they get paid, you have um, a colonel who comes around with a big bag of money and a sheet of paper. Now, the colonel's wily because he can read. So he'll go around and he will pay the guys. And because they can't read, he pays them uh, and they get what they think they're supposed to be getting. And he will give them just a portion of their wage and he'll pocket the rest for himself. Of course, this young Afghan policeman, about oh. a, week, a week into the month, realises he's got no money. And the first thing he's going to do is start taxing the locals for using the road next to his checkpoint. Um, so that we saw a lot of that, a lot of extortion, a lot of robbery of the locals. Um, and trying to explain to them, especially on Hurricane, look, you are the rule of law. You're there to protect your community. Mm. You are from that community. You're there to protect the people that you serve. But yeah, it was it was difficult. And then when I went back on Herrick 13, for me, leaving Herrick 8 was brilliant. I, I left with that warm, fuzzy feeling that what we had done over that nearly seven months, we, we'd done what, what we were expected to do. And then when I went back on Herrick 13, I became very disillusioned because I thought, well, we're leaving the country to these people and they're not going to be up to the task. Mm -hmm. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Yeah, yeah very, very yeah, nice. Yeah, no, it's awful. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I must admit, I did laugh out loud at the idea of the uh, when I was reading it of them turning up stone with K forty sevens. But you're right in the in the in the long sort of thing, leaving leaving the people in charge is it's just worrying. Oh yeah, it was. Um, yeah, and when I when I left Helmand at the end of my second tour, I was like, uh, yeah, I was I was very disillusioned with, with you know, the the Afghan Afghan security forces. But we get to July, and you get your first contact with the Taliban. How, how how did that go? Yeah, so I mean, th- this is the first tour that you know, I'd gone on where there was a good chance that I'm you know I may be killed or injured or have to in- engage with enemy fighters. There was always a threat in Northern Ireland. There was always you know the snipers going around. You know, there was always a threat of of, of violence in the Balkans as well. But Afghanistan was the first tour where I knew that I would be actively engaged. So my, dare I say it, baptism of fire, we were on a night operation um, to clear some compounds north of Musakala. Um, and as it was getting dusk, we were kind of settling in for the evening. We had, uh, I think, three warriors, uh, armoured vehicles in front of us. And um, obviously they're using thermals, they're using night vision. Um, and the Taliban are pushing towards us. You know, we've got AK fire. You know, PKM fire, so light machine gun fire bouncing off the warriors. You know, the green tracers going over the top of us. And then, um, so my battle inoculation was two airburst uh, rocket propelled grenades. So a favourite Taliban of the tactic, uh, sorry, a favourite tactic of the Taliban was they would fire the rocket as high as they could over our positions, knowing that because of the, the makeup of a rocket propelled grenade, at some point it's going to explode. And the hope is that when it does explode, it's directly over us and showering us with shrapnel. So yeah, that was kind of my battle inoculation. Two um, two airburst RPGs right over the top of my position, and you could you know hear the shrapnel bouncing off the compound walls above us, and you know landing in the sort of the trees around us and pinging off the warriors as well. So for me, that was that kind of ooh, that wake up moment, and yet yeah, this is it, this is real. You know there are people out there actively trying to kill us. Mm. Yeah, I mean, we we sort of touched on it already that you know the whole country is hostile. It's not, I mean, it, the weather's like we said, the weather conditions are pretty fucking atrocious. Yeah. But now anyone can any any of the locals could be a Taliban. It could be a Taliban fighter who's going to shoot at you or kill you. And you had several instances of vehicles sort of running checkpoints. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and unfortunately, and and this is the very nature of counterinsurgency and guerrilla warfare. Um. You know, I think it was Mao Zedong that said, you know, the the, the gorilla, the partisan, will swim, swim amongst the people like a fish. Uh, and it's absolutely right because, mm. you know, the vast majority of the time, you know, you would pass people, you know, men, you know, combat age men, fighting age men, we would call them. Um, and you could see them, you pass them, and there'd be the absolute look of hatred in their eyes. They would look at you and they would stare you out as they walked past. You knew they were Taliban, but because they weren't armed, there was nothing you could do about it. You know, they're wearing the same clothes as, as the rest of the local populace. You know, so they walk away and about five, six minutes later, you end up receiving small arms fire. Or in one case, um, you know, a rocket propelled grenade by fired by a gentleman who was actually looking at us and we thought he was just, you know, hanging around, you know, like the, the street corner. So yeah, and of course, rules of engagement, yeah. even though you know who they are. You, you you can't engage them until until they engage you with small arms fire. So, yeah, it, it's a very very difficult war to fight. You know, the, the the people don't speak your language. So nine times out of ten, the locals are gonna be on fav- in favor of the Taliban. You know, they're gonna protect people. You know, that speak their language, people that look like them, people that come from the same background. Um, and and to the Afghan 
uh, especially the, to the Pashtun, tribe is everything. Tribe even comes before God in their sort of hierarchy. So it, you know, it, it is literally tribe before before Allah um, with, with the Pashtuns, so that yeah, they they will look after and they will protect one another, um, you know, as part of the Pashtun Ali code. It must have put an awful amount of strain on on you and the rest of your men, because it's uh, I'm from what my grandparents have said. You know, war was stressful for them, but if if they weren't wearing a German uniform, the chances are they weren't going to be shooting at my granddad. But you, like you said, you've got you walking down the street and two minutes later, so that must have been a, have put real strain on you, almost a yeah. paranoia. It's it, you know it is so difficult because the Taliban knew um, that Western soldiers won't deliberately engage civilians or civilian locations, you know, willy nilly. We would only fire at compounds and locations if we were receiving small arms fire. So they would deliberately use um, compounds and houses that were full of locals, you know, men, women and children who had to cower in fear while they engaged us with machine gun, you know, rocket and rifle fire. Um, and they were hoping that you would actually drop artillery and you would, you would destroy these places and kill the innocents so that they could actually use that against you and say, well, this is what NATO, this is what mm -hmm. ISAF are doing, this is their war. You know, they're trying to kill you Afghan people. You know, this is a war against you. This is not just a war against the Taliban. Um, so a certain amount of restraint um, certainly had to be applied, but restraint with a, with regards to self-preservation as well, because at the end of the day, as I said, you know, I had between 20 and 30 other young men looking at me to and the platoon commander to make those decisions to keep them alive. Yeah, yeah. Um, which leads to the next question of how did you and the rest of Delta Company experience Hurricane on the ground? Um, do you know, it, it's going to sound crazy, but it actually became a matter of routine. Um, yeah. So we would go out and I think pretty much, you know, by the end of the tour, we, we were combat inoculated. You know, it, and I always said to my guys, I said, look, if they haven't hit you in the first 10 seconds, you've already taken cover and there is a good chance they're not going to. So it's going to give you a good chance to engage and return fire and engage the enemy. Um, so it was a very sort of, dare I say, feeling out process. So we it almost became, um, like I say, routine. So you would leave your patrol. We would leave Musakala District Centre um, just before the sun was coming up. You know, morning prayers would begin. Um, we would head out as it was still quite cool. We'd patrol out um, and we would get to a certain point um, and we called it the 8-3 Northern. And I've even got it. It's actually here on my map that I've got next to me. So on the map, it's marked with red and it's called, we called it the FLET, which stands for Forward Line of Enemy Troops. And without fail, you could set your watch by this. As soon as we crossed the 83 Northern, um, as soon as morning prayers had happened, um, we, would, we would be engaged with our first sort of bout of small arms fire um, in an area that was um, locally known as Haji Rashid Gardens. Um, so we'd spend, we'd do that. So we'd receive small arms fire and it would be a few hours of sort of, you know, skirmishing forward, engaging enemy positions. And if we could nail them down, clear those enemy positions, dominate them, and then just look, look into depth and see if we could actually identify any sort of further enemy positions that we would have to leapfrog onto and then try and take over. And that would happen all morning till about lunchtime. And there was kind of like an unwritten rule with us and the Taliban that uh, during the heat of the day, uh, we would take over compounds and turn them into defensive positions. Uh, we'd rest, we'd get water on board, a chance to get all the heavy kit off us, maybe grab five minutes of sleep. 
the Taliban would go away, pray, have something to eat. And then once it started to get cooler, so probably about half past one in the afternoon, the fighting would resume again. And then we'd do that. We'd keep pushing north, pushing north or south, depending on where we were located. And we'd keep pushing and pushing and pushing until till, um, till dusk. And then again, we'd hole up for the night. We'd turn our you know, compounds and local structures into defensive positions. We'd have our machine guns out. Uh, as a platoon sergeant, I would have my light mortar set up in the middle of the compound, ready to you know, fire illumination. Um, and if we required it, any sort of uh, high explosive mortar bombs to be lobbed into you know, into potential enemy positions. And that's kind of how it happened. So, you know, on average, we'd be out on patrol for anything between two to four days. And that was the routine. So two to four days, fighting pretty much all day. Um, and yeah, it, it does it, it. It does get tiring. You know, it does take a strain on the lads, especially when they're carrying you know a lot of kit. Um, but by the time we got to the end of that tour, you know, it almost felt like the weight was nothing. We got used to it. You know, the soreness in the knees had gone, the niggles in the back had gone because we knew how to adjust our kit. And it was a case of, all right, okay, we've been shot at again. Let's just do what we normally do: shake out, return fire, and then we'll jump into some sort of some sort of battle plan. Um, and it, it wasn't a traditional, you know, the enemy are in front of you. It's a full frontal attack, or we're going to do this. Uh, nine times out of ten, we were attacked from three sides. So the company has three platoons. Each platoon might be fighting its own individual battle. And then at the end of that, it'll be a case of we inform the company commander, um, Nick Calder, what was going on. Right, your battle damage assessment, I've engaged X number of insurgents, uh, no friendly casualties, um, ammunition's still good. And then we just, we'd, we'd keep doing that. And then we'd return at the end of that patrol, come back to Musakala District Centre, where we'd get the chance to sort of um, recharge our magazines, um, get more belts of ammunition, you're replaying the ammunition that we'd used up, chance to get a shower. Um, I was going to say something decent yeah. to eat, but no, it wasn't. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, just a nope. chance to rest before going back. I didn't put this in the official questions, but my granddad said, sergeants are the ones that run the British Army. The officers haven't got a bloody good what's going on. How accurate is that for your time in Afghanistan? I, I would have said, so when I first joined the army, so the... So early to mid 90s, even going on to the late 90s when there was nothing going on. Um, yeah, that would be a very accurate assessment. Um, I mean, even you know, past sort of uh, September the 11th, sergeants still did run the platoons because they, they were still experienced men. Like I say, I was 33. But what had changed was um, instructors going to places like Sandhurst, the Infantry Training Centre, Catrick, were now training these students with battle experience. So they were saying to them mm. or teaching them the realities of what they would be facing when they eventually deployed. Because the reality is when you leave Sandhurst or when you leave the infantry training centre at Catrick, there is a good chance looking at the cat badges on your headdress, you are going to be out in Helmand province. Um, yeah. The officers, the newer crop of officers post 9-11 were more conducive. They, were, they listened to advice rather than thinking they knew it all because they'd come out of Sandhurst. It's a case of, right, this is yeah. a... Are you happy with that, Sarge? Does that fit? And if it's a case of, yep, that's a good plan, boss, we'll go with that. Or we might just need to rethink this um, and then tweak it a bit. But yeah, the platoon commanders, the young officers coming out of Sandhurst were wiser because their instructors were combat veterans who were imparting that knowledge onto them and that experience, which ultimately, um, I believe, helped to save a lot of lives out there.
Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I mean, the history, history is littered by with officers who make dumbass decisions that cost good men their lives. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's a good thing that officers could no longer buy their commissions into the British Army. Um, otherwise, that'd be a different story. <laughs> God, yeah. <laughs> we won't pick up that stab, but oh god yeah but, um, you end the book with a really poignant quote where you say most of us didn't fully return from afghanistan how much has the war the war experience out there affected you and and indeed your comrades um for me personally i think i've been very very lucky um when i first came home um it was literally so fireworks night uh so i was living at the time i was in a little place called new Romney. And I was in a top floor flat, so I was lying there in bed at night. And someone fired a massive firework over the top of my flat. And for a split second, it sounded like an RPG. And for a split second, I was back in Hellman. You know, I was awake. I was actually, I got out of bed mm. and I was in the prone position next to next to my bed. And then when I suddenly realized where I was and what had happened, it was like, okay, yeah, you're all right. You know, you're, nothing's happened. Um uh, but th- there are there are guys that have come back, especially those that have been wounded, um, have, have had trouble, have had difficulties. Um, obviously, I'm not going to go into any stories. Um, but a lot a lot of lads have had you know trouble coming back. Um, and me, mm. um, and I, I always say this, and I say it with no shame. Um, there is not a day goes by, you know, I don't think about my service in Afghanistan and especially Operation Hurricane. Uh, and I think we were very very mm. lucky. Um, because we were told at the start of the tour, um, my company, so my 100 and odd troops were told, um, expect to lose something in the region of five men killed and probably double that um, with life-changing serious injuries. Um, as it happened, mm. the battalion, the whole battalion only lost one soldier killed. Um, and that wasn't for want of wow. trying on the part of the enemy. Um, I think it would have been a lot different if we'd have lost, if we'd have had anybody killed in our company. I mean, we had lads wounded, we had a, we had a few people wounded, um, and obviously uh, I highlight, highlight that in the book. Um, but yeah, I think most of us, you speak to any veteran of that tour, and indeed any veteran of Afghanistan, um, there's not a day goes by where, where we don't think, um, we don't remember. Um, and you know, it's, it's always part of us, you know, no matter where we go, no matter what we do in life, it's always part of us. And I think it's how we use that experience uh, carrying forward. Um, in our lives and um, mm. a lot of the guys I served with especially in my platoon have gone on and they have prospered they've gained really good rank within the British Army and they've they've, they've gone on to do really really good things um, which I'm really really thankful for um, certain dates are quite poignant for some of us I mean for me um, the biggest date is the 28th of July um, which is weird because it's a bittersweet day because it's my wife's birthday but it's also the day that um a good friend of mine who was attached to four Scots, um, Sergeant John Matthews, was killed um, in Marja on Hurricane. Mm. So dates are dates oh, are very right. important to us. But yeah, the the war, and uh, this this can go to you know probably any war. Um, it it never leaves you. Um, and I've even heard accounts from uh, from Greek soldiers. I think they called it the beautiful madness. You know, and that's going back to Bronze Age war. Yeah. You know, so we you know. Oh, your war and your experience in the war is always carried with you. But as I said, it depends on you know what you do with that experience and how you carry it forward into your life. And I think if you've got a good support network and a good support system, um, it can prevent things like post-traumatic stress disorder from getting worse. Um, certainly, you know, it's 
I think every soldier who served in combat has some degree of that sort of post-traumatic stress. But to stop it from sort of getting any worse, um, yeah, a good support network around you and good friend, friends and family and people that you can talk about it with. I mean, you, if you're in a network or a group of people yeah. who have that shared experience, um, it, it goes a long way because talking to people that have been through the same same thing you've been through, they, they, they can sympathise with you 100% and um, because they they've been in your boots and probably nine times out of ten have treaded over the same ground as you. Yeah, yeah. My um my other grandfather had been out in Burma and he just he didn't have he didn't have any friends in the army. He kept himself very insular. He was yeah. just kept himself to himself. Never spoke about it. Got rid of any. And it was I think it all stemmed from his war service, and he just yeah. wouldn't deal with it. They come from a generation where to talk about it, and I mean certainly in my dad's service. So my dad was a Cold War soldier who saw a lot of service and. Mm some pretty bad stuff in Northern Ireland, to admit any sort of, you know, if you were struggling or you were suffering, it was seen as a weakness and almost career-ending for some soldiers. Yeah. So I think that's why a lot of soldiers who suffered, especially, you know, the Cold War era, you know, guys that fought in Korea, you know, Burma, you know, certainly Borneo and, you know, the Falklands, all these wars where they were seen to be weak to talk about any sort of, you know, mental health or if they were struggling. I think a lot of them kept it bottled up for that very reason. Which it is a shame, really. It's it's quite sad. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I when I was a student, I worked at um, McDonald's, and one of the managers had been in um he'd been in Northern Ireland, and uh, it was getting the shift. And I said, oh, "Are you in tomorrow?" He said, "No, I'm I'm off tomorrow. My uh my mate was killed in Northern Ireland when about twenty years ago. I got he said it was my turn to ride in the truck, and he was going to walk behind, and he was killed. And I said, oh. All right, he said, I'm literally every day, this day, I can't remember which day it was, he said, I go home, I lock the door, drink. Yeah. yeah. And that's it. Yeah, I, I, I get that. And, and I, that was the end of the When I came home from Afghanistan, um, I we had three weeks off, and that is literally all I did for that three weeks when I came home from Harry Kate was drink. Um, you know, I just, I just yeah. drank. And then at some point, I was like, right, okay. Yeah, it, it's done now. You're home. Um, time to get back to get back to the grind basically get back to your day job yeah absolutely so we, we, we've talked about some of the darker stories and things but war experience you get you have these dark moments and you have the stressful moments then you get the funny moments that we've already talked about but um what what would what which which stories do you think will stay with you the most oh um probably the funniest story and without your know, no spoiler alert um after being engaged with uh, with, with uh, rocket propelled grenade uh, and some small arms fire, one of my lads was wounded, and um, I remember because um, I, I I the 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 picture on the cover of the book, so m- my picture was taken three, four, maybe five minutes before we got hit with the rocket propelled grenade. So I was checking on all the guys, mm. you know, going down the line, everybody okay, and then I didn't get um, an affirmative from one of the lads. So without thinking, I get out of this very, very safe ditch and I'm charging towards where this this lad was last seen. Of course, the Taliban have seen this and I can feel myself being bracketed. So there's fire hitting the wall in front of me, coming across the front of me, fire hitting the wall behind me. And they just try to try to get me to run into this fire. And as I'm running past, the, one of the guys is lying on his back, his eyes as wide as saucers. And he shouts up at me, George, they're shooting at you. And I was like, I looked down at him and I was like, yeah, thanks for the news flash, mate. Yeah, tell me something I don't know. <laughs> so, yeah, that, that was like one of the lighter moments. Um, 
another time, uh, <laughs> I got caught in a three-sided ambush, and um, there was rocket-propelled grenades coming in, and one of them exploded next to next to one of the guys, and he gave out this this girlish sort of shriek, and we stopped in the middle of this this firefight and started laughing. I was like, "What the hell was that?" <laughs> you know. Um, so yeah, <laughs> It's little, little little instances like that. You, you're to to the same person. Would be like, what the hell? Um, and then another time, so we were patrolling. This was when the poppy had gone and the maze was up. Um, so the problem with, and this goes down to it's like poppy farmers as well. Maze farmers they don't have portaloos stationed at the sides of like all their fields. So the farmers just kind of drop their trousers where they can. Mm. So we're we're patrolling along next to this maze field, and there is like a little trail, little piles of human poo. And um, so as the first man's passing, he's like, "Yeah, warning!" You know, it's almost like warning people about IEDs. Like, yeah, there's there's poo there. So this message didn't get back to our interpreter. So as I turns round, I watch my interpreter slide, and he lands in the first pile of poo, and then he starts rolling through the other piles of poo. Now, because of the diet oh, and no. stuff that these farmers have got, it's actually really pungent. And he couldn't get it off. You know, it was like every man who was carrying toilet paper goes in the ration packs to get these little packs of like handy wipes. So he had about 20 packets of handy wipes, but nothing could get the smell away. And I said to him, right, you 10 meters behind the platoon, because that is absolutely stinking. And he said, but sir, I might get killed. And I was like, well, that's a risk I'm willing to take. You are stinking. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, even in the midst of absolute carnage, there are still moments where you can sort of look at it and think, yeah, that that was a close one. But yeah, that was actually really quite funny. Yeah. Oh, good. And that, that, that's, that's quite a good note, good note for us to put it to those. Um, it's been fantastic talking to you. Really, and um, I must say, I really enjoyed the book. So, um, I'm, I'm giving it my deal of approval. So if anyone's listening, do go out and buy it. Um, which brings me to the end. Uh, would you mind... And um, remind everyone uh, the title of your book and um, when it's out and where they can get it. Of course, yeah. So the title of the book is called The Little Men and Afghanistan Diary. Uh, and it's kind of a side note. Um, the reason it's called The Little Men is because that's what the Taliban nicknamed us. So The Little Men and Afghanistan Diary. Um, and it's actually out today. Today is the official release date. Um, you can get it from all good book outlets. So it's available from um, from Waterstones. It's available on Amazon as well. Um, it's on ebook. I believe you can get it on Kindle. Um, so it's actually going worldwide, which quite surprised me. And I'm, I'm very, very impressed at that. But yeah, thank you very much for having me on. And thank you for your, your seal of approval with the book. I appreciate that very much. Yeah, no problem. And we'll, um, we'll get it on our, uh, on the bookshop as well. Um, uh, History Hack at bookstore.org. I always forget the address, but it, it's it's in the footnotes. Um, and then that way, with every sale, the podcast gets a of money, but you get more as an author as an author you will get more money than when it goes for that popular rainforest website that i'm allowed to mention for legal reasons <laughs> <laughs> apologies whoops was that a full car on my part oh no no you're fine it's me telling me saying that they're evil and they need money that, that's that's the thing that's going to get me fired into the moon oh, by yeah. jeff bezos <laughs> but but thanks for coming on it's been really real pleasure speaking to you now, thank you very much for having me i appreciate the chance to you know to get my story and to get delta company's story out there as well um you know, I appreciate it very much because um, hopefully Afghanistan doesn't become one of those forgotten wars. You know, we, you know, you know, every Remembrance Day, you know, please have a pint. You know, think about those guys and girls who are no longer with us, uh, and you know the reasons why we wear our poppies. Mm. Um, thank you very much. Our incredible guests give us forty-five minutes of their time 
to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book.